morning. It is nice to see you all this great morning. This uh, What day is it today? It's Wednesday. <laughs> I've got my days all mixed up. Uh, Robbie, great to see you. You look fantastic. We match today. Look at us. How about We're that? Totally eight. unplanned. We do not coordinate uh, at we all not. whatsoever beforehand, but we end up matching more days than not, I don't know, somehow, yes. magically. Sometimes Brianna and I try to coordinate a little bit because oh, it's okay. kind of fun, well. but, but you and I did not, but we just ended up. Uh, here we are, you know, looking looking like this this morning. So it is yes. great to see everybody. We do have, of course, a great show this morning for you. Robbie, what do we have? Right. So today, Rising Panel will discuss why Wall Street is fearing a recession in the near future. And we'll talk about some polling from the Morning Consult on how adults feel free to express themselves on social media, how free they feel to express themselves on social media following Elon Musk's acquiring <laughs> of Twitter. And plus, we'll talk a little bit about something I've been eager to discuss, but we haven't gotten to, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which uh, is going oh. on and the implications there. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. if you've been following that very closely. I've not been following it closely but we'll have a guest uh, who can talk more about it. Good. I've been following it a little bit. You know, it's been popping up on Twitter, or popping up on random, you know, news sites and whatnot. It is a really interesting mm -hmm. kind of squabble between. I feel kind of guilty, though. It's one of those guilty pleasures. Where yes. I'm like, I, this is their personal business. Is it really my business to know what goes on in their relationship? And, you know, but guilty pleasure, I guess it's one of those things. Terrible. Right. Right. Um, all right. Well, before we get to all of that, we do have some bigger stuff to talk about than Johnny Depp and Amber Heard <laughs> at the moment. Um, yesterday, Senator Rand Paul and Secretary of State Antony Blinken sparred during a hearing over Ukraine joining NATO after Blinken said that Russia hasn't attacked NATO countries for probably good reason, referring to their collective strength against Russia. So let's watch that exchange. Uh, it has not attacked NATO countries. Uh, for probably you a very could, good reason. You could also argue the countries they've attacked were part of Russia. Well, that... Uh, uh, I, were part of the Soviet Union. Yes, and I, fir I firmly disagree with, uh, with, with that proposition. It is the fundamental right of these countries to decide their own future and their own destiny. And I'm not here's, saying here's, it's not, here's but I'm saying that the countries that have been attacked, Georgia and Ukraine, were part of the Soviet Union. And that does were, not And they Russia were part of right the Soviet Union since the 1920s. But that does not... That does not give Russia the right to attack them. On the no contrary, no one's saying it does. They were, but it they were really liberated has to from do. being part of this uh, empire by force. Yeah, so I, I thought uh, it, yeah. it was funny to see Rand kind of being criticized for that, but he's very clear. He's not saying like that means the attack is justified or that they should be invaded. He was just pointing out basic Why? historical facts. And, you know, Blinken was getting so flustered about it, and it didn't really make any sense to me. He wasn't saying that justified, you know, what was happening, but let's just, you know, let's be clear and let's be truthful about, you know, what the situation is and what it's been historically. And, you know, Blinken didn't even want to hear that. Yeah, there's some, there's this kind of odd aversion to wanting to even discuss what escalated to to get Russia to this point. You know, I mean, and I, I agree, I totally understand the, the premise of, look, if you commit an act of violence, so if we were to scale this down, kind of take it away from the war that's going on and just put it into like the context of two people, right? One person hits another person and it's wrong, that person gets punished for it. But then the question is, why did they hit them? Did the person provoke? Did the person antagonize? Did the person maybe hit them a little bit first or do something to them first that maybe made them take a, a swing at them, right? Or even if it's like a dog biting you, for example, you know, what did you do potentially to provoke it? Or, or is the dog just rabid and it's just going mm -hmm. nuts and it's just going around biting people randomly, I guess, like the 
what was it the the little the w- that they put down in DC that that was kind of a sad story. But uh, the fox. Oh, a fox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, terrible. But you know, so the asking of the question why Russia right. did it, what escalated them to this point? That for some reason, if you even talk about it now, suddenly you're a Putin puppet spewing you know, uh, spewing Kremlin talking points. But knowing why Ukraine ended up in this position with Russia. The reason that's important is because, for one, it helps us assess maybe with the negotiation, if there is to be one, which it doesn't seem like they're even looking to have one. And secondly, it would help protect other countries. I mean, as they mentioned, Georgia and Ukraine have been invaded by Russia. You want to prevent a third one from that happening, whichever third one that might be, maybe Finland, for example, because they're talking about joining NATO. So you'd want to know the why so that you could maybe prevent that or at least have or at least have better barriers for when that inevitability might happen. But instead, it's, you know, how dare you talk about it? Right, right. And and doesn't our doesn't a member of our Senate doesn't our don't our elective representatives have some right to discuss, you know, how committed we are to this fight? What we're just going to let it go on forever. That's our you know, if that's the strategy, fine, let's discuss it. It, You know, maybe it it needs to be voted on. It needs to be approved by the legislatures. There needs to be some. Is that what the is that what the public wants? Is that what the the people of the U.S. want? Maybe it is. But like, let's be honest about what it is. If, If it is the case that you know, we are trying to to drain Russia. This is a sort of proxy battle with Russia. I'm not I'm not saying that's just but let's actually be clear about what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. And actually, Russia did accuse the U.S. and NATO allies of pushing a proxy war following reports that the U.S. marshaled 40 allies to furnish Ukraine with long term military aid with Germany, pledging dozens of anti-aircraft vehicles like these to Ukraine in a major policy shift for Germany, who had wavered over fear of provoking Russia. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to Germany yesterday, where he convened with the officials from the 40 allied countries and had this to say. We don't have any time to waste. The briefings today laid out clearly why the coming weeks will be so crucial for Ukraine. So we've got to move at the speed of war. And I know that all the leaders leave today more resolved than ever to support Ukraine in its fight against Russian aggression and atrocities. So meanwhile, Russia's foreign minister said yesterday that the heavy influx of weapons into Ukraine is effectively pushing Ukraine to abandon peace talks with Moscow. That seems to be pretty obvious. The thing that I find really alarming about this, kind of to your point, Robbie, what you were just mentioning, they're talking about long-term now military aid to Ukraine. Uh, I think the American people were hoping for some sort of end to this war, peace talks, likely. Mm-hmm. That's usually how wars end if one isn't being totally demolished. Um, and and yet, instead of peace talks, we're going to just fight into the last Ukrainian. And that is something that many have criticized this policy, saying that who is going to win in this? If, if, this, if it's going to be a fight to the end and it's going to be until one nation is destroyed, which nation is that? Because I don't think it's Russia right now. I don't think they're being destroyed at all. Right. I mean, they haven't even had. I mean, what's happening to them? Ukraine is actually being leveled. Well, Russians are dying. Russian soldiers are dying. Yes. The the, Russia itself is not threatened, but it's it's a costly entanglement for them and one that will go on forever until they they eventually. I mean, you're right. They're going to destroy the country in the process, uh, which is just absolutely horrible. But, you know, I guess the idea is 
as long as they're trying this, as long as they're involved and as long as they are in the country, you know, tr doing whatever that they're doing, they're going to face this resistance from the Ukrainian government, a resistance supported by the West. And that's going to go on until finally Russia withdraws, whether that's tomorrow, whether that's a month from now, whether that's 10 years from now. And they right. will eventually suffer the defeat that we suffered in Afghanistan, that, right. you know, that is, is the common kind of occurrence for large, seemingly powerful nations that try to, you know, in, install, try to force their will on what seem like much smaller, much weaker adversaries, and then find that actually those people are, are, are willing to fight and they're going to fight back. <laughs> on and on, they're not. You're right. They're not going to win. They're not going to topple the invading government. They're going, but that government is going to suffer setbacks and humiliations as it becomes mired and bogged down and involved in this conflict for potentially decades. A, a, a scenario no one wants to see, but is really only on Russia, and or I guess, on, uh, and I absolutely support us. Uh, you know, putting more pressure on uh, on the Ukraine, or, or in exchange for the weapons, you know, trying to say we really want you to try to to strike a deal. But the reality is, it's just it's going to go on, I think, until Russia has had enough. Well, and and to go back to what Tony Blinken said, you know, he talks about the a nation's right, and and I do agree, every nation has the right to self determination for sure. So they should be able to decide whether or not they want to join NATO or whether or not they, right. you know, want to go into peace talks. But the thing is, is that when money is involved, there's a strong arming there. And the problem with Ukraine is that they receive a ton of aid from the United States prior to military aid, just a lot of aid into the country. And they're reliant on that. So when the United States says, we want you to do X, Y, Z thing, or else we're going to take this funding away from you, what kind of choice is Ukraine really making? What kind of self-determination are they really, are they really you know, engaging in at that point? So this isn't, you know, and we do this with all kinds of countries. You know, we use money to, uh, to persuade, to intimidate, to coerce. And this is one of those instances when it comes to Ukraine. So, you know, I, I do agree yeah. every nation has the right to self-determination, but is it really truly self-determination when there's some sort of coercion involved? You know, that's uh, well, something the self, to, the whole, to be thinking about. Right, and that whole line is, like, that's a, that's a admirable sentiment, right? That every nation has the right to self-determination. But what that means ends up being very confusing because the, the you know, the, the lines, the map of Europe has been rewritten 80 trillion yeah. times through history, through the medieval period. So you, I, I like to say that what I think is that all people have the right to live free of tyranny or, to, you know, to the so so to the extent that the Ukrainians goal is not to you know, they do not want to be ruled by Putin's authoritarian government. I think that is a re I understand that goal. I would not want to be ruled by the current Russian government. I wouldn't want to be ruled by the current Chinese government <laughs> trying to pursue zero covid, that kind of thing. I think those. Their governments are just, you know, despite my criticisms, our, our government, I, there are aspects of our government I don't like living under either. But the, these are, you know, more, even more authoritarian impulses. So I, I sympathize and understand people who want to say, yes, we don't want to be ruled by them. But, you know, that's a that's a desire. It, you know, the, if the practical cost is just it's going to be a lot of death and a lot of misery for a long time, um, which is yeah. really really awful. Well, I, although I do think that Russia has actually a plan that I, I don't think it will end up being like Afghanistan. I do think they're going to just split the country in half. I think that maybe could have been avoided, maybe, 
Um, had Ukraine gone to the table, the negotiation table earlier and kind of agreed to some of Russia's first demands. But now that Ukraine is just not going to, and that's really, really clear to Russia, I think they're now saying, all right, then I guess we're just going to have to cut the country in half. And that is something they said originally. They said, look, you not coming to the table, you're now threatening your own sovereignty in this way. I don't think they're going to go after the eastern part of Ukraine. I, I'm sorry, the western part of Ukraine, like Kiev. I don't think that was ever really the plan. But certainly taking the Donbass region all the way and, and the land the land uh, bridge into Crimea and now even into Odessa, I think they're going to secure that entire possibly that entire yeah. uh, border to Russia. And then they're going to stop because the, a lot of the people in that area, they are, uh, you know, Ukraine was already a divided country with Russian, you know, ethnic, ethnicity and Russian speaking Ukrainians versus Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians. So it was already fairly divided, dividing along those ethnic and cultural lines. I don't think, you know, I don't think those people are going to like rise up and fight back. We didn't see that in Crimea, for example. So it might end as soon as that happens. But uh, there's always going to be that aggression on the border, like what we've seen for the last eight years in the Donbass region uh, with against the, you know, the rebels and the Ukrainians. And so it, it could be something like that for a really long time. I doubt it's going to turn into Afghanistan. Let's hope. But who knows? I, I mean, don't know. Will happen, unfortunately. Well, yeah. we'll see. But yeah, I think yeah. it very well might. But we'll see. All right. Uh, we'll have more rising. I'll have my radar coming up next. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, yesterday in my radar, I explained why so many members of the mainstream media are losing their minds over Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. They're afraid that if Musk makes the platform's rules more favorable for free speech, their power to control the conversation and brand all dissenting views as disinformation and harassment, that power will come to an end. So it should come as no surprise that the Biden administration is expressing similar, albeit more cautious, concerns about Musk's Twitter takeover as well. Here was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki reacting the other day. Just a quick one on the, the breaking news, Twitter agreeing to let Elon Musk uh, purchase, make this, go through this purchase. Uh, do you have a response to that? And does the White House have any concern that this new agreement might have President Trump back on the platform? Well, I'm not going to comment on a specific transaction. Uh, what I can tell you as a general matter, no matter who owns or runs uh, Twitter, uh, the president has long been concerned about the power of large social media platforms, uh, what they ha the power they have over our everyday lives, has long argued that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms they cause. Uh, he's been a strong supporter of fundamental re reforms to achieve that goal, including reforms to Section 230. And so that wasn't the only time Saki mentioned Section 230 either. Here she is responding to a question which I believe is from our dear friend Philip Wegman. And we would support taking, uh, including reforming Section 230, enacting antitrust reforms, requiring more transparency, and the president is encouraged by the bipartisan uh, support for or engagement in, in those efforts. So why the sudden interest in reforming Section 230 now that Elon Musk is set to take control of Twitter? Now, in fairness, the interest is actually not sudden. Biden has long held that Section 230 should be eliminated. He previously said, quote, Section 230 should be revoked immediately, should be revoked, number one, for Zuckerberg and for other platforms. 
So confusingly, Democrats have managed to bring many Republicans on board with this idea of changing or getting rid of Section 230. No less an authority than former President Donald Trump has railed against 230. At a Georgia rally a year ago, he said that we have to get rid of Section 230 or we won't have a country anymore. And in fact, Republicans who support getting rid of Section 230, well, they're getting played by Biden, Saki, etc. Because without Section 230, social media would become even more hostile to conservative speech. And many viewers are probably asking right now, okay, what even is Section 230? So allow me to explain. Section 230 is a federal statute that protects internet platforms from some speech-related liability. For instance, if I say something defamatory in this video, I can be sued just like anyone else, but YouTube cannot be sued because Section 230 treats me rather than YouTube as the speaker. So the reasons for having this law are, I think, fairly obvious. If YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook were legally responsible for all speech on the platform, well, then they would have to moderate way, way more aggressively. Maybe only people with blue check marks would get to post at will. Maybe you'd have to fill out an application and prove that you wouldn't post content that could get the platform in trouble, something like that. Section 230 creates the legal regime that permits the internet to exist as it does right now, without gatekeepers reviewing posts or videos before they appear on the platforms. Now, of course, I disagree with many of the individual content moderation decisions that the platforms make. People are not wrong to complain that the moderation has been been too heavy-handed. We have countless examples of that. But getting rid of Section 230 wouldn't fix that problem. In fact, it would make it much, much worse because there would have to be much more approving of what posts are appearing. Now, political figures like Biden and like Saki, I think they realize that, which is why they do want to see the law abolished. Without Section 230, companies like Facebook and Twitter, they'd have to carefully screen content. They'd purge problematic posts, which of course means purging more of the kind of posts that they already purged too aggressively, which is exactly what the Biden administration wants. They want more purging of, of content that they don't agree that relates to COVID and you know other things of that nature. There's no doubt they want it even more desperately now that Elon Musk is taking over Twitter and will possibly have a, have a different regime and allow more, more free speech kind of content. So there'd be no better way to throttle this new Twitter that Musk is creating than to subject it to endless frivolous lawsuits that are currently kept at bay by Section 230. As Steve Del Bianco of NetChoice, a tech trade association, put it, the biggest threat to Elon Musk's vision of a less moderate Twitter is Section 230 reform, which is why it's not, I'm not surprised at all to hear Jen Psaki mentioning it repeatedly the other day. So, you know, this is, and, and Republicans have totally, in my view, been hoodwinked by this because many of them, I'm not sure as much now, but Trump and other Republicans have talked incessantly, change 230, get rid of 230. And like, I get it, that would definitely punish the platforms. It would make their lives more difficult. But it would be, it would be like the Thanos snap of conservative speech. You yeah. would just like instantly clear out everyone's ability to post at will. So how that benefits dissident voices makes, it, it doesn't. It makes no sense to me that people were really believing that that was the right strategy. I agree with you 100% on the Section 230 issue. This is, it is, it's amazing that so many Republicans have been hoodwinked into agreeing with this. I agree with you. The reason why Democrats want it is because it allows them to, to really, uh, to, to hold the, the platforms accountable and say, well, now you have to censor these voices because right. if you don't, you right. can be held liable. Like Elon Musk, do you really want to be held personally liable for all of the rhetoric that people are going to be putting up there? You know, now you're going to be potentially 
potentially liable for an insurrection or for whatever mm -hmm. violence, individual violence against one person or another. I mean, you're going to be the one responsible for all of that because people are going to sue you endlessly. And that allows them to sue you endlessly if we get rid of Section 230. Now, there's no doubt. I think Section 230 needs to be amended. I definitely don't think we should be getting rid of it because then it will just turn the Internet into... Uh, yeah. These platforms will just they, they just won't allow us to say anything really anymore because they don't want the liability. They'll be protecting themselves. So instead, they'll just stick to just blue check type, you know, for Twitter, for right. example. And it would be a very small select group of people. <laughs> Horrible. That the, right. That the company, you know, says, well, I, I and they make them sign contracts saying you can't say anything that's going to cause harm to the company or, you know, X, Y, Z. So it does need to be amended, though, because I do understand the 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 you know the issues with it where from the republican side where they say well you guys have this protection and yet you're instead still censoring so you're not operating as a free and open internet that is not be the reason why there's section 230 is to allow a free and open internet to protect you from the things some person might post on your platform because you're just offering a platform uh, now what's happening is these media companies, these social media companies are operating like publishers and they're picking and choosing what things can be said, what things can't be said. That is not the same thing as a free and open Internet where people can just say whatever they want within bounds of legality. Right. You can't say things that are totally illegal no matter what. But they're not operating that way. They're operating like publishers. So that's why Republicans are threatening and saying, well, I mean, why do you even have this protection mm -hmm. if you're still going to act like a publisher and censor people? There, but the there, answer is not yeah. to make it worse. Right. There, there are probably some tweaks to it I might, I would end up supporting. But my concern is that if we open it up at all to revision, I mean, well, and right now, right, the, the Democrats control the Senate anyway. I, I, I worry about opening it up to revision at all will end up making it worse because some of the idea, like, I understand. Okay, you know, in theory, you want to you want to condition, or you know, some Republicans want to condition this liability protection on right the platforms operating in some neutral way. So could we write that into the law? But then it's like, well, okay, but then who's going to decide whether they're being neutral? Like Josh Hawley's idea was to have a panel of senators. I don't really want like Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren debating whether content is sufficiently neutral. Like that doesn't seem that seems that seems like they could decide content critical of them is not neutral, right? Uh, so, so the, the schemes for trying to figure that out always end up. See, while they sound maybe good in in theory, I, I just I don't like the way they they look ultimately. Because I, like even Elon Musk wants to get like it's not just illegal speech we want off the platform. Elon Musk has said he wants to crack down on spam, right? Well, spam's not criminal speech. It's not it's not a, it's a category right. of speech that he thinks shouldn't be on the platform. But it, but it's not you know that's car, that's carving out something that the First Amendment does protect. So there are, you know, we, I think we all, most people agree that there's some level of nastiness and unpleasantness and harassment and doxing that even if it's not strictly illegal, shouldn't be on these platforms. So, you know, I, I don't right. want well, to uh, prevent or stop their ability to police that kind of stuff. And I think most people don't. Right. No, I, I think really with Section 230, what it comes down to is just a little bit more clarification on 
when you're a social media platform and when you've crossed the line, you become a publisher. Mm -hmm. And if you are a publisher, then you are no longer you are no longer protected by Section 230. And that is something you would you would choose. You would agree to that as a as a platform. So Facebook could say and I think it would cause the platforms to separate themselves a little bit. So Facebook, for example, could say, okay, we have a publishing arm of the platform and then we have a social media arm of the platform. The social media aspect of it is is protected by Section 230. People say whatever they want. Then we have, you know, our curated publishing news section where, you know, you go to and you click on that side and you know you're getting a more curated experience where they are kind of acting as editors and they get to decide what what they want to publish and push and what they don't. I think that's fair enough to somehow write into it what makes you a platform and what what you know what are you have to check certain boxes in order to be considered this versus now you've become just a publisher um, and you're now competing with like the Washington Post I guess and New York Times right. and their websites right I mean, so uh, yeah a, maybe a lot something of, like and that. a lot of Republicans talk about that distinction but it, that always baffles because that distinction right so maybe you're, if you're saying you know we should change the law to clarify that distinction that would be one thing but a lot of people talk about it right now. Like that distinction doesn't exist in the law right now. It doesn't. It doesn't even use those two words. It doesn't define them. Right. It doesn't. So some people are saying, well, if you you lose the protection, if you do, I'm like, well, no, you don't. It's not. It's not in the law right now that you lose the protect. That you have to choose one or the other. But if if we change it, obviously. But I right. I worry that would be. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting to see Saki increasing the kind of Section 230 talk now that uh, well now that Elon it's... Musk is in charge. I How know interesting. It, now it's important to get Republicans to stop also going along with this so that we end up getting rid of mm -hmm. Section 230. It would just, it would, it, I mean, then suddenly, no, there would right. be no free speech anymore at all. Right. What would we do? All our, co the comments are gone on our, you, goodbye comments yeah, you on YouTube. To, right. Yeah, that's gone at, at a bare off. minimum. Yeah. We'd have to be at even more minute, careful yeah. about what we say. Yeah, so. All right, right well, great. coming up, Congressman Madison Cawthorn is in hot water again. The latest with that, we will discuss the potentially insider trading stuff some other things. Stick around for that. North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn is in hot water again. A report by the Washington Examiner reveals that he could have violated federal insider trading laws. Uh, Kim, yeah. you were following that a little more closely. What's the story? Yeah, so what happened was back in December, Madison Cawthorn attended a party, and at the party he was hanging out with, you know, there's photographs of him hanging out with this guy, James Katulis, uh, who's a hedge fund manager and the ringleader of a cryptocurrency called Let's Go Brandon. So, you know, they made a cryptocurrency off of the chat. So it's LGB crypto is what they're calling it. Well, on that same day after hanging out with this guy at this party, um, Madison Cawthorn posted to his Instagram account, LGB legends, tomorrow we go to the moon, okay? Then the very next day on December 30th, NASCAR driver Brandon Brown announced that the meme coin would be the primary sponsor of his 2022 season. And that then made the coin skyrocket 75% in value. I think it hit up to like $530 million or something along those lines. So it's considered a pump and dump because it went up way high in value. By January, it was worth nothing uh, <laughs> at some point in January, right? But people are now looking. So all these watchdogs are looking at Madison Cawthorn and saying, wait a minute. The day before this announcement of this NASCAR driver saying that this LGB coin was going to be a sponsor, um, he says, let's, you know, LGB legends, let's go to the moon. He's 
talking to the, the manager of this crypto who probably struck the deal with the NASCAR driver. And so they're accusing him of insider trading. In fact, um, Dylan Hetler Gaudet, who is the government affairs manager for Project on Government Oversight, which is a federal watchdog group, said this looks really, really bad. This does look like a classic case of you got some insider information and acting on that information, and that's illegal. But However, I guess other people are saying he didn't really buy anything. So is right. that insider trading? Well, and he, uh, I guess it's not, it's not the, uh, well, maybe it's insider trading, it, but it, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a weird situation, right? He just, he didn't find out this information like as a result of like government well, insider information. He wasn't at some hearing where he got information and walked out of it. I guess that's not I mean, that's that's the stock act violation type stuff. I guess that's not. I guess insider trading is just could just be any time you come you you learn information about what. Uh, no, you would have to act on it. Do. So I don't. I don't think this is insider insider yeah. trading I don't think unless so they. They have to investigate. I mean, look, if they investigate and they find out that on December 29th and he posts this on Instagram, LGB legends, let's go to the moon. And then he goes to his computer and he buys more crypto of this, you know, of this particular cryptocurrency um, or does any sort of trading in at all regarding this cryptocurrency. That could be considered insider trading. If he just learns this information and says, oh, awesome, let's go to the moon and then does nothing and doesn't actually act on it in any way, I don't know how that would be considered right. insider trading. You have to actually act on it and benefit by that information or cause some sort of consequence from having that insider non-public information. And it's not really clear um, that he did have that information. So we'll but see. But we This is reminding me that I'm not really, I don't think I really even agree that insider trading should be a law, uh, should be illegal if that's all it is, if it's just... No, that I, that I don't think that is. I, yeah. I think that they're accusing him of insider trading, um, but I think on the surface, what's happened is not insider trading. So I don't think that's. I, I think that it'll have to go into an investigation to find out if he actually did. Right. But even if he did trading. buy, isn't it just a sound investment or something based on no being you know kind of smarter? Well, right. I, I mean, no, that's not smarter. That's knowing something that other people don't know. Some inside information. That's absolutely illegal. That should be illegal for I don't sure. Know why? I don't know that I, I, I it is illegal. You're right. I, I guess I don't know why it should be a crime. I guess. Because I if you know something, for example, if you know something and let's say in the reverse. So it's not just making a bunch of money. You might think, oh, that's a positive. But let's say you find out something negative about the company and you decide to sell prior because you're like, oh, crap, I know something you sell to an unsuspecting person who buys it at that price. You know, it's a bad deal. You know, it's a lemon and you've just sold them like a, like selling them a bad car knowingly. Well, people so who play the stock market should be more careful. I guess I don't. I. It's not a it's not a it's not a crime. <laughs> like it, it's just like you would know more information about various. That's, I don't see why it's like people. that's a that's a. Well, if You're the information swindling. was obtained, unless the information itself was obtained, again, uh, unethically or through some kind of well, government insider knowledge, then I would, I would think it's unethical. But it still well, anyway, has the, if, so. as long as it has the actual value when you sell it. But I don't, that's a, that's a, uh, maybe this is a fringe libertarian view that this isn't yeah, actually a crime. So. I think it uh, might be. But this is not the only thing Cawthorn has gotten. Uh, and again, we don't know for sure that this actually is anything necessarily illegally wrong, which kind of describes a lot of his problems, but he keeps being in the news for various things for this. Uh, so he apparently, uh, he was cited this week for carrying a loaded gun through the TSA. 
And this yeah. isn't. This is the second time he's had some kind of thing of, of that yeah. bringing a weapon where you're not supposed to. Again, I don't think the TSA should even exist. But you know, usually I'm annoyed when they confiscate my hairspray or whatever it is. Don't take a loaded <laughs> gun through the TSA. Come on, how stupid is that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, even in the Idaho airport, I'm from Idaho, a lot of gun owners in Idaho, and and at the airport, they actually have signs on the doors before you enter the airport saying, you know, you can't have a loaded gun in here, just so everybody is clear. Uh, And it's actually painted on the ground as well. So maybe the Charlotte, uh, was it Charlotte? That that he got caught in for this. Maybe they don't. Have, yeah. Maybe they should think about also painting those signs on the floors. I don't see them here in L.A., but I do see them in Idaho. So maybe maybe that needs to be more explicit to people. But yeah, this is the second time he was caught with a loaded weapon going through an airport. The other time was around January 6. I'm not sure where he was traveling to, but I know it was around that time. Um, so at least that's what the news always reports. And maybe because they're trying to make it sound a little bit more sinister. I I don't know the full story on it, but. Yeah, this guy, you know, Madison Cawthorn is such a, you know, he's young guy. He, if you remember, he was just accusing lawmakers of having wild orgies and doing cocaine. Yeah, right? and then he kind of walked that back after he was called out, right? Kevin McCarthy was like, okay, well, you, you got to name names or shut up. And then he didn't name names. Yeah. So. I just think he's so immature. He's just an immature he guy, immature. right? He's carrying, seems very immature. And he's very, is he the youngest person in Congress? Right now, I, I think, think he's he the is. youngest person in Congress, like ever. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So I mean, he's kind of acting like it, right? I mean, yeah. with these like, let's go to the moon, and he's like LGB crypto, and oh, I'm going to bring a loaded weapon through these airports twice, and talk about wild orgies and cocaine, and you know, right. <laughs> Did you know. see like, those I, uh, those pictures? And I, I thought that was ridiculous. Very cancel culture adjacent. He was getting. I, uh, attacked by some people. Did you see those pictures of him from the last week? There's pictures of him like on a cruise or something, and he's like wearing like women's earrings, and it's some kind of costume thing where he's like dressed in like a feminine way, which I guess is maybe people are trying to say that's hypocritical because he's taken this like very hard right, you know, no drag queens reading to kids or what, you know, that kind of whole the groomer type thing. So maybe that's they're oh. trying to say it's hypocritical of him. Um, I, I, I. <laughs> there's embarrassing pictures of everyone, right? It's not, there's nothing wrong with whatever. Um, but he was that was another scandal he had the other week. Oh, he's just uh, riddled with scandals. But, you know, I always look at these kind of scandals, and I, I, I'm always, the, one of my first thoughts is, okay, I, I get it, I'm reading it at face value, I hear these scandals, but wh- is this person being, you know, are they, are they trying to get rid of him? Is the Republican establishment against him? Do they not like some of his... I don't know enough about Madison Cawthorn, what he's been saying right. for Republican circles. You would know better than I do on that. But, you know, is he is he taking an anti-establishment line? And so are they kind of going after him? But then, look, if you're going to bring yeah. a loaded weapon into an airport, that's you. That's not some narrative spinning, right? That's not just them pinning something on you like I think they've done to other people. Um, where, Like Matt Gates, I think they I think they do unfairly go after him and try to pin some really heinous stuff on him. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't, but I do think they re- the establishment really does not like them. And so I'm always suspect when it's the same with happens to Democrats all the time as well. Happened to Bernie Sanders, notoriously, most famously, I think, regularly by the Democratic right. establishment. So but, you know, Madison Cawthorn does. Uh, I think he kind of, you know, digs his own holes. <laughs> well, I was defending him, you know, when he first got to Congress, he, he got accused of some some sexual harassment stuff. And there, there was this weird piece accusing him of being a secret Nazi because of 
Right. He, there's, there's, yeah. And it was very, it was very one of those kind of Russiagate, like connect the dots, like, oh, we like the hand gesture Nazism kind of stuff that I, yeah. I thought was, you know, totally ridiculous. But but it does look to me, the, the, the part of that the, uh, reporting on him that did look more accurate was that it did, it did seem to me like he had kind of inflated his, uh, some of his background and you know, whether he'd been interested in doing the military and that kind of thing. Oh, right. So it just speaks, I do think there's an immaturity with him. I don't know that <laughs> he's the most, like, qualified necessarily to be a congressperson. He, I, I, not, he's not a bad dude. Not everything he's done no. is wrong. I don't think he's a Nazi, but I'm not sure he needs to be a congressman either. If that's I mean, I, I think everybody's everybody's qualified if you're an American citizen and you want right. to be, you know, I, I like seeing the variety of people in there that are coming from all walks of life. I think it should be more reflective of all the many different types of people that we have here in America. But uh, but yeah, I mean, th- maybe he could grow up a little bit. Think if our Congress <laughs> is reflective of all the people in America. I have a very, I'd have a very negative view of the people in America. Our Congress is is uh, is an embarrassment. I, again, I my my statement right, always yeah. is that I don't care if any individual one of them resigned. They should just all resign because they're all an embarrassment and they're all bad and they all don't care and they're just. They're just performing. They're just, you know, they're being right. entertainment figures. They're being talking heads. They're not doing any actual legislating. Um, it's a, it's a, it's truth? a performance with all of them, and some of them do the performance better, and some of them do it less well. But it's, it's not. It's, yeah. it's not real. Congress, the least effective, most useless branch of government at this point. Most they don't do much. Most ineffective, like organization ever <laughs> to ever exist. Not even yeah. among the branches of government, but just ever. So. Gotta fix it, that's for sure. All right. Anyway. <laughs> well, we do have more rising coming up next. I think we have our panel. We're going to be talking about inflation, soaring inflation, and the impacts that's having on, of course, uh, Democrats and Republicans coming up this fall. So that's coming up next. Amid ballooning inflation and growing fears of an imminent recession, stocks sunk 2.8% yesterday, with big tech experiencing some of the day's worst losses. Apple, Meta, Alphabet, Netflix, and Tesla all dropped. The tech-heavy Nasdaq composite sunk by nearly 4%. It's the worst day yet in 2022. The bear market doesn't rebound soon. April could be Wall Street's worst month since April 2020. A rising panel joins us now to discuss. Nicole Brenner-Schmitz is a Democratic strategist, and Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Nevada State GOP. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, Nicole, you know, how does this impact the landscape for Democrats, which we're all kind of expecting to be just, you know, looking at a really, really bad uh, election cycle in November, and the news just keeps getting worse and worse, and now, you know, we're worried about a recession in the near future or next year. You know, what, how, how does this register for the party? Certainly the party needs to take it very seriously and be concerned. Those who are more dismissive uh, are, are worrying a lot of others in the party. Uh, this is something the Democrats need to realize is top of mind for Americans. Inflation is their number one issue. Concerns about everything costing more is certainly at, at the top of voters' minds. And something the Democrats need to be taking a proactive approach about. We're seeing some, some different piecemeal uh, pieces of legislation move. Senators Maggie Hassan and Mark Kelly introducing uh, a federal gas tax pause, um, different, different pieces. But we really need to see the party as a whole take an approach that is going to relieve Americans of some of this 
financial burden that is going on. Historically, when a party is in charge of all three chambers going into a midterm, they tend to have some losses. The party is aware and, and bracing for that, but there's still a lot of time. But we have to remember, too, that they have to remind Americans what they have done. We can't let the voters have a short-term memory. We did, in fact, have a huge job growth. We are creating more jobs. We did have the American Rescue Plan. We did provide lots of COVID funding. We need to continue to address COVID as it comes up. We need the under fives to have a vaccine. We need this medication that the Biden administration procured, I believe 20 million uh, doses of. I, I might have that, that number wrong off the top of my head. So these are important things for the Democrats to be reminding voters that they're doing for them as well. Amy, uh, you know, presumably we think that the Republicans are going to be taking over Congress, um, at least the House, possibly the Senate in the fall. They're going to be inheriting kind of this mess. I, I know that Biden is still going to be in the White House, but what is going to be the playbook, do you think, going forward for Republicans on how they're going to change the messaging, at least maybe their messaging on how, how, what are they going to do? What kind of things are they going to bring to the table to try to relieve some of the suffering for the average American? Well, we're going to have to allow people to re retake control of their own destinies and their own livelihoods. And uh, the fact that, you know, she just mentioned a laundry list of things that the Democrats are proud of um, are actually, I think, some of the things that have put us in the positions that we are, unfortunately, today. You know, she mentioned the America Rescue Plan. Well, my husband's a Douglas County commissioner here in the state of Nevada. And in this little, little, little county, they were issued $9 million um, that's just sitting there. And so now they have to figure out how to spend that. There is a major surplus of money that has been pumped into the economy. And that's what's causing a lot of this problem. And not only the, the continued uh, money, even like the CARES Act, you know, the money that just keeps being pumped into the system uh, and that's just sitting there. Uh, we also have then the supply sh shortage problem. Uh, China's got got a, another COVID lockdown that's taking place. So you've got ships sitting there with containers filled with our products that we're in great need of. We still have, you know, she talks about uh, job growth, but these are most likely people who are now going back to maybe their original job or just they've chosen a new profession. Um, it's not necessarily new numbers. It's people going back to work. And we're still seeing people, though, not going back to work. And that's been a major issue as well. And so I think the fact that the stimulus uh, checks have been divvied out um, on a number of occasions, uh, including the lockdowns that took place, you have a sense of complacency. And uh, it's a matter of trying to get people back into the economy, back into the workforce, because you're not going to be able to pay for the basics. We cannot keep this, um, we can't sustain this with the gas prices uh, skyrocketing with the way that they are. I was just in Missouri. And when my daughter and I landed uh, for a golf tournament that she was in, she looked at the gas that, that, that they offer. And it was anywhere from one to $2 cheaper uh, compared to what we pay out here in the West. And she said, oh my gosh, I would move out here just for the price of gas. But then you hear the people there 
saying, and I swear to you, I heard a conversation at the airport where a woman was in distress because she said, I have an hour drive ahead of me, but I only have X amount of dollars in my wallet. I don't know if I can make it uh, from point A to point B. This is what people are dealing with. And inflation, I think, is the number one priority in this upcoming election. And that's why Republicans are going to do so well. Yeah, and Nicole, there's this perception, you know, fair or not, there's a perception that the Biden administration just doesn't get how difficult this is for working people to afford gas, to afford other things. Uh, I think we have a, a clip of, of yeah, Jen Psaki yeah. kind of, right, Kim, you were going to play that or call for it to yeah, be played? Well, it's, yeah, we have that, the clip of Jen Psaki walking away from this important question about low-income Americans. Yeah, let's run. Back tomorrow, first thing. Thank you so much, everyone. Jen, Americans continue to suffer on high gas prices, such a low income American with Jen. Yeah, and, and, you know, to be fair, she's taken questions about it right. in the past, but there is this perception that the administration just doesn't understand. You know, you see tweets from wealthy Hollywood Democrats, you know, being like, oh, well, I would, you know, gladly pay more in gas to help Ukraine, which is a like fine sentiment, but not, not something relatable to working people. How do you respond to that? I think this is something the Democrats are facing right now is talking about Biden's strength. One of his big strengths in the 2020 election was he's the empathizer in chief, right? This is something that they, they've leaned on in this, uh, in their campaign and in this administration. And it's not quite translating right now. Um, you're right. This is a perception, I think uh, somewhat unfair. I think that the, the administration is taking seriously what's going on um, with, with working people, but certainly having mega millionaires come out and say that they'll happily, uh, pay this uh, for to cover the the war in Ukraine is is not what everyday Americans are are necessarily feeling. People are concerned about their own pocketbooks. But you know, referencing back to things like the supply chain, that it is an issue, which is why I think the Biden administration has made clear that it's really important to have manufacturing happening in the United States again. Let's have some good union jobs in what we refer to as the Rust Belt. Um, I know Senator Sherrick Brown doesn't want us saying that anymore. Um, let's build back into America and make sure that we're creating things here. And these are good jobs. It's not just about job numbers, I agree. It's about what kind of jobs are these? Are these jobs that you can have a decent wage, decent health care? And, and raise your family with your kids going to good schools and, and be safe in your communities. That's what Americans want and care about. And that's what Democrats have to demonstrate that they are delivering. Amy, just real quickly, um, Republicans have, have historically been pretty hawkish against the wars and uh, pro-war. Uh, and in this case, we do know that a lot of the sanctions against Russia and also the shipment of many weapons over to Ukraine, that this is very costly. And one of the things that is that it, one of the ramifications of the of these sanctions and this prolonged war is not being able to get things like wheat and chicken. And that's going to be a real big problem. So do you think the messaging from Republicans, if they were to take office this fall, are they going to be still pro sending more weapons and signing off on that? Or do you think they're going to be saying, hey, we need to actually ramp this down, negotiate, get out of this, maybe dr uh, drop some of these sanctions because they're only hurting Americans, not so much hurting Russians? Um, or, or do you think they're going to be like, oh, no, let's just keep this going. And now it's started. So we got to keep going. 
Well, I myself, as a Republican, I'm not a war hawk, but I do have a very close friend of mine who's on the ground in Ukraine, and she's an independent journalist. And she is reporting back to me almost on a daily basis that they do need more equipment. And I'm not just talking about your tanks, your missiles, um, everything that, that we hear about on the mainstream media. I mean, some some of the, the more smaller items that are crucial, like the helmets, the Kevlar vests, uh, just to keep the citizens safe who cannot escape, uh, maybe due to finances or because they're elderly or um, incapacitated. Uh, so there is still a great need. Are we going to be able to fund this forever? No, it sure seems like we've pumped in a, a ton of money and an ungodly amount of money. And so it's now people are starting to question, are we actually funneling money for other purposes on top of uh, helping Ukrainians? Uh, you know, who knows at this point, but I think we're doing the right thing at this moment. And when Republicans do take back uh, the House, uh, I think that we can reassess and, and see how much um, headway Ukraine has made at that point and uh, hopefully discuss with our NATO allies and go from there. Yeah. Well, Nicole and Amy, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Morning Consult has new polling out on Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Reporter Chris Teal will join us for that. Stick around. Following Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, Morning Consult polling found half of all Republicans say they cannot speak freely on social media, and that's compared to about two in five U.S. adults overall. Morning Consult also reports that three in five U.S. adults say they support social media companies' release of their algorithms so users can see how content is recommended to them, whereas seven in ten adults say they believe social media giants should moderate content on their platforms. Tech reporter for Morning Consult, Chris Teal, joins us now to expand on this polling. Welcome to Rising, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Kim, Robbie, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, I really want to expand on this. Um, the, the numbers of seven out of 10 want more regulation or moderation by these social media giants. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do they mean by that? Who are these people in particular? What kind of moderation are they talking about? I think mostly people want to see offensive content, more offensive content taken down, uh, hate speech, inciting violence, um, you know, racism, discrimination, all the kind of um, things that you perhaps wouldn't say in polite company. Uh, I think that's the that's the role that, that people appear to want social media companies to take based on our polling. Yeah, it's interesting to see. So there's a lot of discussion about uh, free speech. Elon Musk says this is his vision for Twitter. He wants it to be more of a free speech site. And I saw uh, on Twitter yesterday, I saw Nate Silver remark that, you know, it, it's and then and then the critics of Elon Musk are, are sort of like condemning that. But it's, it's weird if the concept of free speech becoming coded as like a right wing thing or an Elon Musk thing. It's very kind of odd because free, you know, free speech is, so, I don't know, something liberals or the left has, has professed enthusiasm for uh, go, going back a long time. And, and also free speech polls, I think, very well as a concept. But then you get into this nitty gritty. And I'm sure you, you experience this when you're trying to look at polling because it depends on, well, how do you define free speech? How do you define, like, offensive content? How do you define moderation? Like, we all agree 
Right. People want things they're offended by not on social media, but they don't count what they're offended by. They're, what they're offended by is hate speech, and that shouldn't be part of free speech, right? It's these, it's these kinds of very difficult, and the way you phrase these questions can impact how, how people answer them, I think. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's always been a bit of a quagmire of, you know, where do you draw the line? Because, you know, the First Amendment is the First Amendment and it protects everything, you know, that you want to say. But, you know, do you have the right to express that on, on social media? I, it's, a, it's a challenge. And I think Elon Musk is going to find it a very interesting challenge to, uh, to deal with when he's uh, running Twitter. Do you expect that people are going to have a, kind of a switch on sentiment a bit. So when Elon Musk is fully in control of Twitter, do you think that instead of what is it, three, two and five uh, Republicans feel like they they can't speak freely? Do you think that's going to be Democrats? They're going to say, oh, I can't speak freely on Elon Musk's Twitter. It's hard to speculate on on polling. Um, I, I would expect to see a shift in sentiment, um, but it, it's hard, it's too early to say, you know, how that data is going to shift. Um, until we, he actually takes control, starts making the changes that he's proposed, and uh, you know, really puts his stamp on uh, on the place. Do we even know when that is? By the way, does anybody know when is when does Elon Musk officially take over that? I don't, platform? Think, I don't think that's known yet. I was going to ask you, Kim. Did you get a boost in uh, followers uh, since the news? I think I've gotten a slight boost in followers. I, I think there are people who left who've come back who refollowed me, uh, and I, I was seeing and, and some accounts are experiencing that. Although I think overall. It's down because like angry, uh, angry liberals or angry progressives have left in in some significant numbers. Uh, although like Sean yeah. King left and then came back or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't noticed anything. I haven't, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, I, I don't know if I've seen a boost in numbers necessarily. I know that there have been people that have said that they've lost followers, saying that oh no, ever since Elon Musk took over, I've now lost, you know, Democrats that say I've lost thousands of people suddenly. But you know, well, it's there's like, a yeah, bot well, purge. Twitter confirmed they did a purge of bots. So if you lost a lot of people, it's because you had bots following you. Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. Have you done a poll, Chris, on whether or not people would like to have some sort of verification of if you're a human being? This is something that Elon Musk mm-hmm. says he's going to do: is verify all human. I think it's a great idea. I don't, you know, if you're a person, you don't have to do it if you want to remain anonymous or something. But I think it's a really good idea that anybody and everybody could get that blue check if they're a real human being. Have you done any polling on that or do you think you're going to do any polling on that? Yeah, if I remember correctly, we've polled on on something like that to try and get rid of the bot problem, the catfishing problem uh, and, and that sort of thing. And it, it is a popular um, thing to do among um, adults. You know this idea that you have to actually be who you say you are on social media um it seems to be something that people can get behind and the the releasing of the algorithm is an interesting question it looks like that's a a popular thing to do that i think makes a lot of intuitive sense to people i like the idea however i wonder if it is in tension with elon musk's other stated goal of cracking down on on, on spam bots and things like that like if the algorithm is no, aren't the people who are going to be most interested in that? Are the, are the people figuring out how to game it for, for like spamming purposes, right? I mean, potentially, sure. We, we won't know until the algorithm is released. Um, I mean, it is very popular. 57% in our recent survey said that they would support releasing the algorithm publicly. I think what that tells you is that people feel that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Let's open the hood. 
let's have a look underneath and see how these algorithms work and, and work out how content is recommended to us. It's been controversial for years, how social media algorithms work. So yeah, let's just take a look and, and see, uh, see, what, see what they do. I'm surprised it's only 57% who want to see the algorithm. I mean, who are these other people that are like, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't need any transparency in my life. I don't, I, I trust don't Twitter. Whatever they, whatever they yeah. want to tell me is, yeah, is, is fine. I mean, I, I wonder, like there's a part of, yeah, there's Go a ahead, part of Chris. me that wonders if it's, if it's people that don't necessarily understand the science behind it. You look at all this lines of code and you think, I don't, I don't really need to see that. Um, you know, it, it, it they might just find it difficult to understand. It's, it's a view I, I respect. I mean, I'm not a data scientist. I wouldn't necessarily understand the algorithm, but I do think it, and as our polling shows, people want to see what's going on um, so they yeah. can, you know, just, just have, a, have an opinion and, and see how content is being recommended to them. Well, and I know some people will say, you know, why does there have to be an algorithm? You know, I just want to see everything I subscribe to in a, in a, roughly chronological order. Twitter does give you that option currently. You can flip over to that. I've tried it. I found it horrible. I found it so, so much worse than actually having the curated feed where Twitter will say, oh, yeah, this tweet is six hours old, but it's you know from someone whose content you usually hover over, so you probably want to see it. Here you go. Uh, which I, you know is, is manipulative, and a lot of people think there's downsides to it, and I'm sure there is, but for, for my trying out both, it seems just so vastly preferable to the other. Maybe there are some people who enjoy it the other way. I, if you think you're one of them, I, viewers, I encourage you to try it out. I thought it was horrendous, personally. How do you do I, it? I, I am do you one of those. Over to that side. You, yeah, you, 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 you like the chronological. That's amazing. I don't know how yeah. people how you, can. Uh, how do you do it? What do you mean? How are you guys doing this? You can switch it in your settings. Uh, what do you mean in your settings? You can switch it. For those can. of us who are Twitter idiots, how do you? I'm not on this platform enough to, I hate Twitter, to be honest with you. I hate it. I do. I hate it. If I didn't, I, I really don't even want to be there. I try to, every time I always try to leave Twitter and then people always coax me back into it. And so I'm I looking how back. you do it. I, well, yeah. I, I can find it. It's, you can do it, or at least you were, you were able to do it. I've done it before. Well, you, yeah, you have, you said you have it the other way. So it, it's, it is doable. You just flick a button, but. Yeah, I think it's I'm in the top to right corner. This. Uh, no, there's nothing in my top right corner. I don't think. Oh, yeah, oh, the settings up there. Okay, I see. And then you do. Would it be under accessibility or additional resources? Yeah, no, no, no. You just click this little glowy symbol with the stars on your on your yeah. homepage, and then it says "See latest tweets instead." You click that. Oh, I see. There's a star thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, Try I it just out. Did see it. if you like it better. I just did it. All right. See if you like see it better. If I like that. You have to report back tomorrow. I think I'm gonna like tomorrow. it better. Yeah, okay, I'll let you know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for joining us and, and walking us through this, uh, you know, new, the, what we can do with our Twitter <laughs> accounts. No, <laughs> Thanks for having me, Kim and Robin. Appreciate the, it. The Really, imp really interesting information um, regarding those polls. So thank you so much for joining us. All right, well, we're going to be talking about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That is coming up next. Our next guest has been following the libel lawsuit filed by Johnny Depp against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. Auguste Mayra writes for The Federalist, quote, due to the propaganda of modern feminism and the corrosive decadence of modern culture, women as a whole have come to dominate and abuse men while men as a group have become ha helpless victims mirrored in mediocrity. 
Gust adds that if more men don't become the heroes of their own stories, they could end up like Johnny Depp, victims of destructive relationships. English teacher, senior editor of The Everyman, Auguste Marat, joins us now to discuss. Welcome to Rising. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about what's going on, you know, in the trial and the themes that that are emerging, you know, from your perspective, and you're relating this to current fem- femininity, feminism, and, and masculinity. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I saw the story about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, uh, to me, well, it, it, it's a like a lot of other divorces that I've observed, like with people close to me. Uh, what you generally have is a weak man and a strong woman, and and I, and I think it just kind of embodies a lot of the the trends that you see. Like as women rise, I think you see men have been failing, um, and so and I think <clears throat> women kind of get into these relationships uh, just to use their husband or to to use the man, and that's kind of what I saw Amber Heard doing with Johnny Depp, just using him for his money and his fame, uh, but not necessarily supporting him or complimenting him. Uh, and I think that's kind of been a product of feminist messaging that you see in pop culture where it's empowering, right? Uh, and and that, that part's good. You know, movies and characters and all that will say, okay, you can be strong, you can do anything you set your mind to, uh, but that responsibility component and that compassion component seems to get lost so that you have women who, is, who achieve and they, they, they rise, but they don't know how to you know, be kind and support the others. And men, on the flip side, have just been kind of failing. They're not striving anymore. Uh, and they kind of enter this state of learned helplessness. And so you get yeah. this interesting situation where you have, you know, a woman starting to exploit. Well, but I guess that's kind of, I mean, why would you say that Johnny Johnny Depp is weak because he's the victim of domestic assault? I don't know that that, if strong people can be victims of assault, right? I I mean, he's just as famous, if not dramatically more so, and successful than uh, Amber Heard is. Yeah, I mean, I think by strength, I mean, I mean, in terms of his habits, in terms of his judgment, in terms of, I mean, taking the lead. To me, it seemed like Johnny Depp was not interested in taking the lead or being responsible. And I think the expectation was that he would or that he should. Um, So, yeah, he's rich. He's famous. And in that sense, I guess he has strength. But uh, in terms of just like personal control and, uh, you know, taking taking ownership of the relationship, uh, it seems like he's, you know, he's like a lot of other men. I, I, I see just um, just kind of passive, retreating, withdrawing. Um, and I mean, as far as taking a side on the case itself, like who's abusing who, um, I mean, you know, it's he said, she said, literally. So, I mean, um, I, I just kind of look at that power dynamic. It looks like Amber Heard has the power uh, and can make the demands and still play the victim. And then Johnny Depp well, also wants to play the victim. And so it, it, it's a mess to, to be sure. Okay, but so for, for modern, modern feminism, I mean, to blame modern feminism for this sort of weakening of men, I mean, do you think that, so women rising up and women becoming stronger really has nothing to do with men, but 
perhaps men did, haven't figured out how to handle it, right? So it's not so much that women are, you know, women have risen and so now women are abusing men. I think it's just that men haven't figured out their role anymore because they're so used to being the breadwinner, being the, the one that pays for everything, being the, you know, the head of the household. And now that that is a shared role in most house, in many households, that's a shared role now, men haven't, it's not that they needed to counter the feminist movement with, oh no, we're the strong ones still, but just figure out how to complement, how to figure out how to exist amongst strong women. I, I just think men haven't figured that out. I don't think that it's the fault of modern feminism. I actually think that's the fault of men who haven't figured out how to continue to be men in a new, under a new paradigm. Uh, my wife would agree with you. <laughs> um, no, but I largely agree with that. Uh, my criticism is not, I don't want to blame feminism for the failure of men. Uh, and in my article, I write about that. I think men have been brought down by just really poor habits, just video games, porn, and uh, just a lack of role models. And so, I mean, and I just see that as a teacher working with my men, you know, my young men, uh, I just see them just not ambitious and trying to achieve anymore. So, I mean, there is that component, but I would blame feminism for making women a little bit more exploitative in the sense that, and this is where I've seen divorces happen. You have a woman who's achieved, she has a great job, she's making money, but she kind of uses her husband. Um, either to have kids or to to take care of the kids. I mean, in the same sense that men exploited women in, right. in marriages in the past. Yeah. So um, I, I think you do, you're right. I think there needs to be some complementarity. And I, I think the woman needs to enter that relationship uh, less as a girl boss um, and more as, okay, we are equal partners, we're going to help each other, and that means being patient with each other when someone's falling short or someone needs help. Uh, and in the Amber Heard case and some other kind of decent relationships now, uh, the woman will just say, I have no time for you, we're divorcing. And she's got what she needed and she's bored and now she's gonna move on to another relationship. And to me, it's like, well, that, that, that's not a good message, that's not responsible. Um, and of course the man needs to step up. So, I mean, I, I think the fault lies on both. I don't think men are weak because of feminism, but I don't think they're helped by feminism either. And I think women, I, can't, I think are getting this message that you can kind of use and abuse men like men abuse, use and abuse women in the past. I guess I have some, I have some inherent skepticism of some of the generalizing you're doing about men becoming weaker or young men having more problems than they used to have that so you have to overcome my inherent suspicion of, of ideas that oh yeah things are getting worse and there's so many more problems like I is is bullying is like physical violence against young men worse in schools today than it was decades before I, I doubt that it is so you know you have to maybe the I, I don't know how uh, I think it's hard to grapple with how serious I, I believe I'm persuaded that Porn addiction is a is a problem for for some young men, not all young men, but some of them. But do you really see, you know, in your role as a teacher, do you really think it's it's getting worse? Because actually, when you look at sort of depression levels and I think even the suicide attempts, it's actually young young women have been doing really badly um, uh, lately. Some of uh, some of their issues are actually catching up to where men is, where the where the young men are not registering uh, a dramatic increase, I don't think, in those kinds of things. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that I'm generalizing. Um, I mean, but I mean, I guess just based on my personal experience, uh, <clears throat> I think men have adopted a lot of bad habits. I mean, again, the statistics are pretty bad as far as, you know, well, more women are in the workforce, more women are graduating with college degrees, just those kinds of metrics. Um, <clears throat> as far as, you know, and I think women, they've been succeeding and achieving, but I think a lot of times there is a lot of pressure on women, which in turn kind of increases the level of unhappiness and depression among women, because not only do they have to be breadwinners and achieve uh, on the career side of things, but they, they're expected to be you know, beautiful and to have children and to be great homemakers. So what I kind of see is that women are taking on two roles uh, and men are kind of leaving both roles. So women are both the breadwinner and the homemaker. Uh, and I think a lot of men, um, and again, it, it is generalization. I, I wish I could give you studies on this, but uh, I, I think they take think that step are. back. Like, I, I actually think that there are studies that have been done that show that women who work still end up doing quite a bit more of the housework at home as well. So, you know, it's not equal distribution, even if they are equal financially, equal partners, um, you know, in providing and being head of household, there's not that equal distribution when it comes to the to the household work. So I agree with you on a lot of these points that, you know, women have kind of picked up a bit more. And and there hasn't been that counter on the men's side. And I so kind of going back to what I said, I would say that the men just have not figured out their role in this new world where women are equal. And men have struggled to figure out their place in that. Men have been trying to figure out, okay, you know, this is what my envisionment of a man always was. And now all of a sudden that's very different because women are different. And there hasn't been this sort of concerted effort or even leadership amongst men inside of, you know, the man world to say, oh, this is how we continue to be men amongst these very strong, now equal women. It's like, you know, back in the Viking days, women were warriors also, right alongside the men fighting in the battles. That change, you know, so how they, and, and, and then we see this even now in modern military times, the discussion of, well, what do we do with these women, you know, that want to be in the military? Like, do we put them on the battlefield? I don't know if we should do that. You know, they're kind of trying to reassess and refigure it out. Something that other cultures m- many, many years ago had already figured out and then it had been lost and then maybe rediscovered. So I think there's this kind of, circular type of evolution that happens through time as one dominates and and then there's trying to kind of become more equal but you know it's an interesting we've kind of devolved away from our original discussion of johnny depp and amber heard which is you know also a very interesting case but i i think you make some interesting points but i do think we have to wrap it up and unfortunately we can't get to more of this other stuff i think we um we've run out of time but very interesting discussion nonetheless a discussion we don't often have here on Rising. So this is kind of new and interesting and fun. <laughs> so, um, August, thank you so much for joining us. Really great having I you. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll have more Rising coming up next. CNN saw substantial viewer losses this month, shedding 43% in total primetime viewers, 54% from the primetime demographic, in total day viewers and 43% in total day adults ages 25 to 54. That's compared to March. While CNN is still finishing April in Basic Cable's top 10, the network ranks number 13 in April among total viewers and number 15 in the primetime demographic. That's according to TV Newser. And I suspect that partly reflects 
probably the declining new I mean this is awful but the declining newsworthiness of the Ukraine war right that it's been going on long enough that probably people are not quite as glue and well and covid has been a, right a long term thing and right? Andrew Cuomo not being there anymore wasn't he <laughs> what isn't he their top guy Right. People not having to be glued to their televisions about any specific news event, you know, that right now or less glued than they were before is what I suspect that reflects. Right. Yeah. Well, and also but but it's kind of interesting because people are still tuning into Fox and people. But, you know, then again, there's a Democrat and, you know, Democrats are in control. So Fox is still on fire. Right. They're like, oh, no, you know, the world is ending because Democrats are in control. So there's always this world is ending sort of, um, that's what keeps people viewing the news. Uh, the world is any, or th- big change like elections, of course. But yeah, I think CNN losing a lot of the interest in COVID, a lot of people are just moving on. And they've tried to continue dragging it out. We've seen this, we see this even with the administration, because that's like the one thing I think they feel like they have some kind of control of. If they could say, well, we've got new uh, drugs for you. We've got new vaccines for you. We've got mandates for you. Right. It's like the one thing that they feel like they have control over because they can't control Russia. They can't control inflation. Right. They can't control crime on the streets, you know, all these other things. And so they're prolonging the one thing they maybe have some kind of semblance of appearance of control. But um, people are over it. People are moving on. People are outliving their lives and they don't want to be watching doom and gloom on CNN. And, and yeah, Ukraine, people cared for a minute, but the reality is most people don't even know where Ukraine is. They don't know a single Ukrainian. I have Ukrainian family members from Ukraine who immigrated over here, um, married into the family. But most people don't know a single Ukrainian, right? And they're, or Russian for that matter. And they just are, but these are substantial losses for CNN in one month. I mean, these are, this is huge, 54% in total adults, 34% in total day viewers, 43% decline. That is a massive number of people. I mean, a third to half hightailing it away from the network. Do you think, I mean, the big question I think is, do you think CNN is going to change? Do you think they're gonna look at this and say, we need to make some changes? And do you think those changes are gonna be to go more extreme and to manufacture more doom and gloom? Or do you think they're gonna say, maybe we need to stop spewing so much establishment propaganda. I mean, which way do you think they're going to go? It'd be one thing, too, if they were losing numbers because every, all of their normal viewers were just watching on CNN Plus instead. But we, we know that's not the case. <laughs> so, so they're, no, they, they're they, going, they've they're, actually lost they're, them. They're going elsewhere or they're just turning well, off their TVs. Well, they're going to Tucker Carlson. I mean, Tucker Carlson has more Democratic young viewers right. than CNN does. So, well, right. They're, you know. I mean, they're watching not because they agree with Tucker. You know, they want to. But, but no, but it doesn't matter, right? They're watching because they want to know what, a, what an important... Uh, oppositional commentator is saying, so it's it's not good. Yeah, I mean, CNN obviously has to, to change. They're, so they're getting a new president. Um, I, his name evades me at the moment, but he's he's going to have to chart a different course. I don't know how they can, if, if they double down on what they're doing now, they, they, they need, well, so they need Trump back. I mean, that's the bottom line. They And then maybe they'll get him back. Ugh. They absolutely need Trump back. If Trump runs again, it will be God's gift to CNN, I mean, to cable news in general, because he is great for ratings. He makes people tune in. They want to know what he's saying. That, it, it will be, that will single-handedly, it won't entirely save the network, but that will boost their ratings substantially yeah. for a period of time. So that's, that's the that's strategy, the- Hope that, which is so funny because they're also against Trump ideologically they don't want to be a president, but they need him. They absolutely need him the way, you know, the way, like, 
the Joker needs the Batman. I think that they're just, that, because that would be once again a crisis, a doom and gloom storyline of oh no, you know the white supremacist, racist, misogynist, sexist, uh, Russian Putin, Putin, Putin puppet is back, <laughs> and so you know this is the worst thing to happen to American democracy, and so they would. Um, that's again, it just goes back to that. They just need doom and gloom. So that's the problem. And the people I know, even in my own personal life, if they watch CNN, they are miserable people. It is, it's really, and that is unfortunate. I, I don't know how You don't think that just describes it, people but... who watch exclusively cable news in general? No, I think CNN, MSNBC and CNN, you know, Fox, I, right now, I feel like the people that watch Fox, it's kind of go, it depends on what, when they're watching. So if they watch kind of during the day, they're just kind of getting their basic news. Um, but if they watch at night, you know, the personalities are so different. They're not really in line ideologically. I mean, Tucker to Sean Hannity is pretty different. Um, and so, you know, on a lot of things. And so I don't really get the sense from Fox viewers as much that the world is like everything is horrible. I mean, they're they're definitely griping. I do think that's the, I think that's common amongst cable viewers is griping. Oh, this Biden administration and oh, you know, these bad thing going right. on here. But the actual like misery, depression, feeling like the world is ending, not wanting to have children because you don't want to bring them into this terrible, awful world, not wanting to celebrate the 4th of July because, oh, my gosh, it's celebrating the treacherous history of this horrible country founded on the worst principles. Right. That's like CNN and MSNBC viewers. They don't even want to celebrate holidays. I mean, they're just miserable. So these networks, I think, need to realize that you can only milk misery for so long. People don't actually fundamentally want to be miserable. People want to be happy. It's kind of the human condition. So if they continue to feed misery to their audience, eventually their audience says, I don't want to be miserable anymore. I'm turning you off. Maybe they don't go somewhere else, but they just go away from there was you. A, but there was, a, I remember a study of U.S. COVID news from like a year ago. I think I, maybe it wasn't that long ago. because I think I talked about it on the show at some point with someone. But it, it showed that in U.S. media markets, the coverage of the pandemic was re, was more negative than in our, you know, peer uh, yeah. news coverage in Europe and other places. It was relentlessly negative, even, and it was cross, it was not just ideological, it was like cross-partisan media, relentless negativity, even at times where, where positivity was merited, given some good news in the pandemic, cases going down, <laughs> vaccines or something. Yeah. It was relentlessly negative, and what the study found was they're doing that because that is actually what the people watching wanted. They like they well, wanted to wallow yeah. in that misery. I I think there's a, I don't understand it, but I think there is a there's a desire. Like if if positivity was going to succeed, the new news media outlets would pivot in that direction. But it's always been the case. It's you know going back to newspapers, local TV. Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads. Stories of kidnappings and murders and right, scary right. stuff. That but people it's still just want the works. happy ending. Yeah, they still want the happy ending. They want that follow up to that kidnapping case that you found the kid, right? People want to have the ending to this COVID pandemic never that find we the kid. ended it. Well, but, you know, but they still want to hear a different yeah. story then of a different kid that's been found. I mean, at some, you know, some time, I mean, it's it's got to be a balance between the misery and the bleeds it leads. 
and some happiness. I agree that happiness, you know, there's no happiness network out there and there's a reason for it. People don't tune in, but people can only take so much misery. You do have to feed them at least some dessert once in a while to sweeten mm -hmm. the deal a bit. And they're just not doing that. They're feeding doom and gloom. Even now with virus cases, you know, down as low as they are, well, hospitalizations and death are way, way, way down. Yet they're still talking about, well, but, you know, we have to go back to these mask mandates because the virus is spiking. You know, it's gone up by 43% from last week in this one spot. Oh, yeah, by the way, last week it was only two cases, but it's right. still 43% above two cases from That's last our week. So we have to all panic. That's our positive. That's the positive message of this news broadcast for the day. <laughs> Go out, live your life. If you're, if you know, if you're vaccinated or if you have it, you have lots of protection from future disease, which is more likely to be mild anyway. Cases are down, hospitalizations down, deaths are down. It's good. You can go out, be happy. That's our affirmative, affirmative message to our viewers uh, for the for the show today. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe CNN will start cluing in on that too, and maybe they'll decide. Do you remember that? Do you remember the case count of the num They would have the numbers. I think it was cases. Yes, yeah, so the death counter. Yeah, the, de they had oh, the death. They had a death right counter right there on too. the side. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was miserable. I mean, Fox was definitely. They also did the death counter. They, but, but absolutely. Look, I never really watched Fox prior. I mean, I always would dabble in all the networks, but prior to the pandemic, I did primarily watch as my most go-to news station was actually MSNBC um, and followed by CNN. During the pandemic though, Fox was the only one that at least had some kind of happiness. I mean, at least like Fox's The Five would end with like dog and cat stories, you know, for the day. Um, CNN it would just blast in your face this death counter and how the administration, the Trump administration was killing people. Everybody was killing people. Trumpers were, you know, and it was just doom and gloom all the time. And I do think people, at some point hit a breaking point and they just say, I've got to turn this off. I cannot handle it anymore. It's just too much that I've just got to separate myself because it's just ruining my life. So, you know, you've got to give them a little dessert, a little sunshine every so often. And I don't think CNN has any intention of doing that. They're just, it's treacherous. Don't let Trump win. <laughs> All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, our panel will join us to tackle the big news of the day. And a union tradesman discusses why the working class has no political party to represent their interests when it comes to nuclear energy. Yeah. Be sure to like, share and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right. We will see you guys tomorrow. I don't know if I'm here the whole show tomorrow. Uh, I don't think I don't know so. Either. I think I'm just back to my regular schedule, but... I think we're going to sleep. I'll in. be here, and we have no idea who else is hosting. But uh, I, I tune in tomorrow, Brianna and you'll find out. Here, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't don't know. make any promises. All I don't right. think we know for sure. That's true. You're right. Okay, no promises made. We will be here in general tomorrow for you. So be sure to tune in. All right, we will see you guys then. Bye bye. Bye bye.